disaster and famine strike. An elderly widow loses her two sons. Childless, she tells her daughters-in-law to return to their parents' homes and that she, Naomi, will make her own way back from Moab to her family in Bethlehem. One daughter-in-law regretfully leaves. The other, Ruth, says the famous lines, Where you go, I will go, and where you slumber, I will slumber. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. The pair arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest begins, and Ruth, coincidentally, goes to the field of her dead husband's relative, Boaz, to glean. The two discover each other's kinship and kindness. A late-night meeting in the threshing floor leads to marriage, Ruth and Naomi's redemption from poverty, and, eventually, the birth of their descendant, King David. The story we are discussing, of course, the Book of Ruth, was written about 2,500 years ago. But, argues our guest this week, it couldn't be more relevant today as a model of creative halakha. It's not the dry law that matters. It's the spirit of the law that matters. If you understand that the spirit of the law is taking care of people, then you are ready to be flexible. That's Israel Prize winner, Bible scholar, Professor Yair Zakovich. We sat together this week in his Hebrew University book-lined office to discuss the societal context of the Book of Ruth and the quote-unquote problems it solves. We hear how the author, in opposition to the writers of the contemporary prophets, offers a scripture of compassion that is sometimes sorely lacking today. We also hear about today's rampant biblical illiteracy and why it is immensely important for secular Israelis to re-adopt the Bible for themselves. This Shavuot week, I, Amanda Borshaldan, ask Professor Yair Zakovich, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for allowing me to join you in your beautiful office in Harat Sofim, Mount Scopus campus. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. So we're here to talk about the Book of Ruth ahead of Shavuot. And of course, it's read on Shavuot, but I wonder, is it still relevant today? So I ask you, Yair, what matters now? The Book of Ruth is very, very relevant for our times because it's all about intermarriage and about halachic creativity, mm-hmm. something which is very necessary nowadays. And maybe rare even. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
So let's dive into the book of Ruth and talk about its dating. When do you think it was written? Well, the book of Ruth, it's very important actually to, to date the book of Ruth, because only if we find the date, we can understand what was the context, what was the social context, the halachic context of that time. So the Book of Ruth was actually written in the time of the return to Zion, about the 5th century BCE, something like that. And um, how do I know that it was written that late? First of all, uh, the language. The language is very different from the Hebrew language of this first temple time. But there are many other reasons. First of all, uh, uh, Ruth is a perfect person. There are no perfect people in biblical narratives written in the first temple period. And B, Ruth is a woman. The book is named after a woman. Only, again, in later times, there were books uh, written about women. The book of Esther, of course. The book of Judith, which was not included in the Hebrew Bible. And then Susanna, which is actually uh, one of the additions to the book of Daniel, uh, which we find in the Septuagint. But something else, the location of the book. Uh, I know for sure <laughs> that the author of the book intended, wanted it to be put between Judges and Samuel. How do I know it? If you look at the end of the book of Judges, the last story there about the concubine from Gibeah, it's about a woman that leaves her husband and goes to Bethlehem. She's quite selfish, leaving her husband going to Bethlehem. Ruth, then, is the opposite. Ruth goes to Bethlehem because she's an altruist. She left her family and followed her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. But, of course, the book of Ruth is should have been put next to judges, because how does it start? In the days of the judges. And then if you look at the end of the book of Ruth, you see that it's related to the very beginning of the book of Samuel. In the end of the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, verse 15, we read uh, uh, about the baby that has been born. He will renew your life and sustain your old age, for he is born of your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Pay attention to the end of the verse. Very similar to what we have in the first chapter of the book of Samuel. When Elkanah, the husband of Hannah, is saying to her, Hannah, why are you crying and why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? There are no other verses in the whole Bible that are similar to these two verses. So what the author of the book of Ruth has done is what we know now in modern medicine, transplanting organs. If you want to transplant an organ, you have to make sure it won't be rejected. So the author made sure it will be well attached to the end of Judges and to the beginning of Samuel. And of course, if we put it before Samuel, don't forget that the book of uh, Ruth ends with the genealogy, the genealogy of the house of David. And that's a great uh, introduction to the book of Samuel, because in the book of Samuel itself, we don't have a genealogy of David. 
We know who his father was, but we don't know who his grandfather was, etc. So here we get like an, a great introduction. So the author wanted it to be put between Judges and Samuel, but it didn't work. Why didn't it work? The process of collecting the books of the Bible, putting them together, was a very slow process. And the, that part of the Bible, the Torah and what we call now uh, the early prophets, that part was already closed. It was impossible to add anything to that part. So as if the author came to the publisher with his book and he was told, no, we are not in business anymore. Cross the street, perhaps there, there is another publisher, a new publisher, Ketuvim, try your luck there. And that's what happens. Okay, so, so many questions, if I may jump in. Yes. Number one, when was the canonization completed for, for the prophets? Yeah, look, the, the canonization of the prophet didn't end again before the Second Temple period. Uh, for instance, the last prophets in the 12 minor prophets, you have uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, who are all from the times of the return to Zion. So that's... Uh, why I said that the Book of Ruth could not have been uh, included in the early prophets because uh, the early prophets was already closed, that part, but the part of the other prophets was still... But in other religious traditions, it, it is slotted in, in the spot that the author intended it to be, is yes, it not? Yes, of course, in the Septuagint, and then, of course, in the Christian Bibles, that's where it is. Uh, the, the order of the books in the Septuagint, for instance, is much more logical than the Hebrew Bible. They could play with it, move it, put it in the right place, but it was impossible because of the process of canonization. It was impossible to do it in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I wonder if you can give us a couple examples of the use of language that, that you use to date it to the period that you suggested. Yeah, I'll have to use Hebrew here because in the Book of Ruth, it's Nasoisha, Nosimisha, you marry a woman. In, in the early Hebrew language, it's Lakoach Isha, you take a woman. Or Shalof Naal, taking off a shoe. In the early language, shal ne'alecha, etc. Or, for instance, the root agon, halaente agena, that appears, anashim agunot, etc., appears only again in late biblical Hebrew, etc. The, the men, anchored woman uh, yeah, concept exactly. that we have yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, very interesting. And in the um, copies that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, do you see any differences in language to what we have uh, in our regular standard Hebrew Bible? It depends. It depends. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are two types of scrolls, of biblical scrolls. One type follows the, the language the way it was. If you copy a book of uh, an early book, biblical book, the language will be exactly the way it was. But they are like what we call uh, vulgar uh, scrolls. Common. Yeah. In which the language was changed many times. So people of that time when the scrolls were written would understand the biblical text. So there you see late biblical Hebrew or late language in early books. 
Really interesting. Okay, fantastic. So we've dated it and we've talked about why it's not placed with the judges. Now, you alluded to this earlier when you talked about Ruth as a perfect person. And I'm not a scholar of any sort, but I always like this book because it seemed to talk about really ordinary people, not not perfect. I mean, it, she's poor, she's ordinary, she's common. So what makes her and, and the people in this book perfect? Uh, look, uh, she's perfect. Uh, in, what uh, what else can you say about a woman that leaves her family behind, moves to a country, she has nothing to do with the people there, with the language, with anything, following her mother-in-law. That's a miracle, following one's, one's mother-in-law. I have to say, I would follow my mother-in-law, Good. love her dearly. So you are perfect too. <laughs> <laughs> Far from. <laughs> uh, and again, if you you compare it, to the other uh, daughter-in-law, to Orpa. She's also a very nice person. She she was also interested in leaving her world and moving with um, Naomi to uh, the new world. But Naomi convinced her at the end to stay where she was. So you see, one is almost perfect and the other is more perfect. And the very same happens at the end of the book. There is the closer relative, Hagoel, who was ready to redeem the field of Naomi. The moment he heard that he has also to buy, to get Ruth in the transaction, he refused to do it. He was almost perfect. He was willing to fulfill a mitzvah. But Boaz is more perfect than him. So you see, Ruth and Boaz are actually perfect. And because they're perfect, they can have the King David as their yes, of course, and descendant. that leads, of course, to the birth of King David, etc. And God is very pleased with what has happened. We'll talk about it more, I guess, uh, while we continue the conversation. Okay, so you talked about the idea of redemption, the redemption of the field, and I, I never quite understood this part because it doesn't seem to a hundred percent jive with what we learn in the Torah. Oh, okay. Now we get to a very interesting point. Uh, The book of Ruth does not follow exactly the halacha of the Torah. Because if we follow the halacha of the Torah, nobody is allowed to marry a Moabite woman. And indeed, that's why it was so important for me to tell you what the date is. Because if we get to the second temple period time, the time of Ezra and Hemiah, we see that Nehemiah is actually, in Nehemiah we find a quotation. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we read, uh, at that time they read to the people from the book of Moses, and it was found written in, so no Ammonite or Moabite might ever enter the congregation of God, etc., etc. That's a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation, etc. So the Ezra and Nehemiah wanted to follow the Torah the way it is. There, there was no flex- flexibility there. And in that time, there were many Jews married to foreign women, to Moabite women, to Ammonite women. And that's the real problem of the book of Ruth. The problem that the book is trying to solve is... Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, you know that uh, when Ruth gets to the field of uh, Boaz, she asks him, why does he treat her so nicely? 
she's a foreigner. And she said, I'm a foreigner. And the whole book is actually an answer to this question. So how does the book of Ruth solve the halachic problem? It does it very slowly. First of all, we can start by, when I said that Ruth has asked this question, Boaz is telling her, I have been told all that you did for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and came to a people you have not known before. I'm sure that you, pay, you see or you hear that this verse is very, very similar to the very beginning of the story of Abraham. How God tells Abraham, go forth from your native land, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So immediately we realize that, wow, Ruth is as good as Abraham. But if we stop for a moment, we'll realize that she's better than Abraham. Because Abraham was, was commanded by God to do it. She was not commanded by anybody to do it. So immediately you, you realize that Ruth is, wow, she's, as I said, perfect. Then, at the end, towards the end of the book, Ruth is being compared to the other mothers of the people of Israel, to Rachel and Leah. Again, it's great. So the, the, the author of the book of Ruth is using biblical stories, mainly from the book of Genesis, to show you how great Ruth is. But we have a problem. Because when we think about Moabites, we immediately think about the story. We can't avoid it. We immediately think about the story of the mother of all Moabites. The story of Lot and his daughters. And that's a terrible story. Really terrible story. Terrible story. The daughters of Lot, they should have asked their father who would have told him that it was not a world catastrophe, it just a local one. They didn't ask. And they made this plan. Actually, the elder one, the, the mother of the Moabites, she made the plan. They slept with their father, etc., etc., because they thought that there was nobody in the in the land or in the world to 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 get married to them, etc., etc. Um, so we need a vaccine for this disease. What will we do? So we build the story of Ruth, especially the third chapter in the book of Ruth. So it shows you how much better Ruth is than, than the mother of all Moabites. And you, ca you cannot judge her the way you judge the mother of all Moabites. Because in a way, the story is very similar. Again, two young men have died. The, the husbands of the daughters of law and the husbands of, the, um, of Ruth and Orpah. There is a problem. There is no continuation of the family. Um, the elder woman is actually initiating the mother of the Moabites. She is the one who initiates the what they do. And Naomi is the one who initiates the truth will meet actually Boaz. And we have also many words in the two stories that uh, appear in both. Uh, for instance, Shachov or uh, Tulai or, uh, of course, uh, Lot is drinking 
and Boaz is drinking before Ruth actually meets him in the threshing floor, etc. Another story that serves us very well is a story of Genesis 38. Story of Genesis 38, that's the story of Judah and Tamar. Because there too, what happens, uh, again, there is the husband of Tamar, actually, actually two, two sons of Judah have died again. There is no continuation of the family. A woman, Tamar, is initiating how to solve actually the problem. And uh, the plan works very well. Uh, the plan works, but not that the man she planned on having a son with, because Tamar wanted to, to be married to Judah's son, third son, Shelah. But at the end, she actually slept with Judah. And here too, the ideal would have been to get for Ruth to get married to the Goel, to the, re to the closest relative. At the end, she marries Boaz. So you see the resemblance. But again, you see that Ruth is much superior to Tamar. Tamar is not behaving that well. She, she uh, disguises herself as a prostitute, etc. Uh, she sleeps with Judah. He has no idea whom he's sleeping with, etc. And Ruth doesn't initiate anything. It was Naomi who sent her to the field of Boaz. And anyway, they don't sleep that night. People, some people think that there is a, that they sleep there tonight. No, he's telling her, no, let's wait for the morning and go to the gate and making everything in order according to the law. And then they get married. And God is very happy at the end with the marriage of these two. Uh, as it's written there, literally, and God gave her pregnancy. So you, we have the approval of God. Now the story of Genesis 38 is an anti-Judite story. Oh, that's so interesting, actually. Because yeah, it's a Josephite, Josephite story against against Judah, who married a non, um, a, married a Canaanite woman, etc. And then he becomes a widower, and the moment he sees a prostitute, he jumps and does what he does etc., etc. So if the people of Judah, now, I'm getting back to the Second Temple period, if the people of Judah say, well, we don't like Moabite women, shh, look at yourselves, look at your history, you are not better than the Moabites women. So you see how all these Genesis stories are serving us in order to build the idea that we should not blame Ruth for anything that happened in the past. She is perfect. Now, after seeing all these stories, and uh, we, we still have a problem, because now we are going to deal with the law, with halakha. How can we change the halakha? And so that's very nice. Look, in the Torah, uh, we, have the, we have two laws. One in uh, the, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, uh, when you reap uh, the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard, etc., etc., etc. And we have another law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24:19. When you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf in the field, do not turn back to get it. 
it shall go to a stranger, etc., etc. What the book of Ruth is doing is combining these two laws. Boaz, as if Boaz knows these two laws, and combines them in order to take good care of Ruth. What we see here, because Boaz is not also let, not only letting her glean in his field, but he's also telling his people, pretend to forget, pretend to leave some sheaves, pretend to, so she won't feel bad that she is actually gleaning it. Protecting her honor, exactly, dignity. Exactly. But the fact that he's combining two laws shows you that it's not the dry law that matters, it's the spirit of the law that matters. If you understand that the spirit of the law is taking care of people, then you are ready to be flexible. And then we get, of course, to the main problem, or another main, main halachi problem. We all know the story of um, or the law of the leveret marriage, Yibum, in Deuteronomy. Ruth <laughs> doesn't fit into this law. There are no more sons for Naomi. There are no more sons, and already in the first chapter, Naomi is telling her, I don't have other sons for you. So, it doesn't work. On the other hand, we do have in the, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, if your kinsman in in straits and has to sell part of his holding, the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his kinsman has sold. We have a law about redeeming a field, but we don't have a law about redeeming a woman. What the author of Ruth is doing? Combining the two. Combining the law of redeeming a woman and, and the law of leveret marriage and creating something new. It's a halachic midrash. Again, we want to solve Ruth's problem. The dry law does not allow it. Well, it should remind you of our, our times. When the halacha is so rigid, so dry, you cannot change anything. And here you see, being creative, being able to combine two laws and to create something new, solves the problem of Ruth. It sounds like you feel like this is a, a case of compassion, and perhaps it is. I, I, I also just wonder, did they perhaps consider Ruth property? I would not use this term um, for Ruth being property, but anyway, what what matters here that we want we want to solve the problem of this woman of this family. That's what matters. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniel Hartman, and I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together, we host the podcast for Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, 
thought and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Do you have in your head who this author could have been? What, what was this person? Who, what world did he come from? He was a, a, I won't say that he was a, something between conservative and informed Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Where would or, he have lived? Or perhaps or, a very yeah. modern orthodox. <laughs> anyway. A rebel Cohen. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Something like that. A, a man that, you know, understood that one has to, co- to uh, solve the problem of all these Moabite and Ammonite and foreign women. Because when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they are, they are demanded to divorce these women. That this, these women have families, they have children. So one had to come up with a solution. And now we get to the most difficult part. The most difficult part is, of course, um, Still, we have this law in Deuteronomy, no Ammonite or Moabite, etc. What can we do? But <laughs> the, law, the law in Hebrew, Adonai. a male should not. Hmm. Ah, a male. So perhaps this law is not only about male and not about female. So we can actually allow... Um, Moabite and Ammonite women to get married to Jews. Fantastic. Uh, It's a very dangerous way of interpreting because according to this law, you can murder me now. Because I can we, murder you. You can murder me. Because I'm a female. Because a female. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> I get a pass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you get a pass and I'll be dead. <laughs> and actually, you see that the Ruth has actually the book of Ruth has actually changed the halacha. Because in the Mishnah, in Tractat Yevamot, we read, uh, the male Ammonite and Moabite are prohibited, and, uh, and the prohibition con- concerning them is forever. But the women are permitted uh, forth wealth. Okay, so many questions here. You're depicting this author as uh, basically a halacha maker, right? And so during this period in which the book you suggest is written, do we have any other authors who are doing the same thing? Any other texts that are showing us that uh, people can be creative, that are building their own midrash in in scripture? Look, (laughs) the midrash in scripture starts when the first letter in the Bible has been written because the writers are changing the oral traditions so they go well with their ideology, their religion, etc., etc. The Bible is all about Midrash. Midrash does not start with the rabbis. Midrash is, can be found within the Bible itself. And when we get to halachic Midrash, yes, you find, a, of course, uh, look, if you look at different laws, for instance, take the law of the Hebrew slave. You have the law of the Hebrew slave in uh, Exodus 21, and then again in uh, Leviticus 25, and then again in um, Deuteronomy uh, chapter f- uh, 16. 
different laws. But you already see that if you read these laws closely, you can see there are different stages that since the moment the law, the law of Deuteronomy is actually interpreting the law of Exodus. But then some additions have been put into the law in Exodus, so it goes well with the law in Deuteronomy. That's what they call the boomerang effect. <laughs> you need to smooth everything out yeah, to make sure yeah, the, yeah. the editors... Yeah, because, because, because then you have a problem. Okay, I'm going now to the market to acquire a Hebrew slave. Am I going to treat him according to uh, Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus? Of course, you have at the end, you have to create, to create one way of interpreting these laws and the process starts already within the Bible. It's basically time travel paradoxes that they have to uh, sort out throughout the tradition. Yeah. But I want to take you back to, to this time period and, and this civilization that we're talking about that's reading it or at least hearing the stories. You're talking about somebody who is incredibly literate in in the Torah, sure. at least. Oh yeah. And and perhaps. But uh, by the way, he's literate yes. in the whole Bible in because the whole Bible. there are the quotations from even from Chronicles, the, the book of Job. Just think about it: that Naomi is like a, fem, a, a female Job, etc. Right, for sure. So he knows he knows almost the whole Bible, and that's another proof that it's a very late book. Right, and then. I wonder if it's received in, in a way in which it's written as an opposition uh, text. And so, therefore, it's not included in the chronology that the author no, suggests. No, no, that's not the reason. It's not included there because this part of the Bible has already been canonized. That's why it's all, only in the Ketubim. Okay, so we have no idea how it was actually received by the people who heard it for the first time. No, we don't know how it was received by the people who heard it the first time, but... But then we see that it was accepted first into the Bible and B, it changed the halacha. Yes. The author was very successful. <laughs> For sure. And today when we're reading it, we're getting, I mean, obviously when you read any text, you're reading it from your own perspective. But I wonder if people are actually receiving the message that you're finding there, that halacha can be creative. I hope that people do get it. If not, uh, I'm, I'm there to help them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy to be your platform. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, such a pleasure hearing about this uh, book of Ruth from, from your perspective. And I wanted just to, before we end up, let's talk very briefly about the importance of biblical literacy in contemporary society. I have oh my God. many children, some of which... Uh, your lovely wife has taught, <laughs> but uh, you can see in Israeli school system that the Bible is in the secular system is not necessarily being reinforced. And I imagine in the more orthodox systems, the ultra-orthodox systems, the Talmud takes precedence. Right. So where do we put the Bible today in Israeli literacy? Yeah, I, first of all, it's very painful. <laughs> I really mourn the situation that people now, or in the at least uh, secular people, don't know their Bible anymore. Very different from the time, long time ago, when I was a, a young boy, when we learned the Bible. And there are, there are many reasons. Uh, let me try to mention some of the reasons the the Bible is not as popular as it used to be. First of all, the language. The Hebrew language changed a lot. For uh, Israeli kids nowadays, the Bible is written in a foreign language. 
Biblical Hebrew is very different from modern Hebrew, and modern Hebrew is so very poor, or at least the way it's being spoken nowadays by young people, it's very poor. Would you put it at the level of uh, Shakespeare for a modern English speaker, that different? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So that's one problem. Second problem is that since certain parts of the society demand a monopoly on the Bible, take for instance the settlers, they demand that they their interpretation of the Bible is the right interpretation. They know uh, what God meant when he said what, whatever he said. So if you demand a monopoly, okay, take it, go away. We don't, we are not going to deal with it anymore. And that's a terrible mistake of the secular people. It's ours as much as it's theirs. Um, the fact that they demand a monopoly should not let us give it up. And so I'm hope I hope that one day we'll find a way to bring it back to the secular people. Something else, you know, the way uh, we don't have enough good good teachers of Bible. There is a great shortage of teachers. So in many schools, I hear that if there is no body to teach the Bible. The sports teacher can get into the class and teach the Bible because we all understand the Bible. You need the teachers who deeply understand the text. So tell us about the Revivim program. Revivim was our way to, to start a revolution, to change the situation. And it works very well. But it's, but it's not enough. Uh, nowadays, in, every year we have in Revivim about 12 or 13 people only. We should have had 50 people there in Revivi. But humanities in general is uh, suffering. That's another, that's another reason why the knowledge of the Bible is so poor, because um, <laughs> humanities in general uh, are not very popular nowadays. Uh, when, I, when I was a student of Bible at this university, there were 300 students in the Department of Bible. Now I don't think that is, there is even 100. Uh, and the reason, and that's another reason. When I was young, oh my God, I was young one. <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, Bible went very well with Zionism. It was the time of Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister of Israel, and for him the Bible meant a lot. Uh, for him, the Bible, here we are returning to the land of our fathers. Here we are speaking the language of the prophets again. Here we believe in the values of the prophets again. Here we cultivate the land the way it was cultivated by our patriarchs, etc., etc. And that's how we took it. That's how we understood it. Because for us, the establishment of the State of Israel was a miracle. Now, people who are born nowadays take it for granted. We live, the land of Israel is now like any other country in the world. So the stories of the Bible or the Bible in general doesn't speak to them the way it spoke to us. But we, we should not give up. We should try again and again different words to cope with this problem. And I see some hope. Look, if I think now about all these demonstrations now, it's, at some point we gave up, we secular people, I'm one of them. I am as well. Yes. Okay. At one point, we gave up the flag. 
Now, now you see that all these secular people are standing, demonstrating, holding the flag of Israel in their hand. We demand back which was taken from us, which we gave away to the others. And I think that the very same thing we slowly, slowly will happen also with the Bible. Now that we are in a mood of fighting the Haredim, we'll take back what they or others have taken from us. We can see it uh, in the youth. Uh, several of my children are now at the stage of Mechina and uh, met most of these between high school and army programs are all about Jewish identity, all yes. about learning right, who right. you are. So, so there is some hope. There's there a is. lot of hope. <laughs> I'm going with you. A lot of hope. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you're, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Last week, my colleague Kanan Lidor reported on how dozens of male converts in Israel who have all but finished their conversions are being denied their official recognition due to the lack of a 10-second verification of their circumcision by the single mohel in Israel who is qualified by the conversion's authority. This is obviously a far step from Ruth, who after declaring to Naomi that she will now follow the Israelite God, was seemingly accepted into the people of Israel. She is the ancestor of King David, after all. There are currently 510,000 Israelis of no religion living here. Many are born here to parents or even grandparents who made Aliyah under the law of return. Many live primarily in Hebrew, serve in the army, and are, in most respects, living parallel lives to their halachically Jewish fellow citizens. Many have tried to enter the state conversion programs, but the obstacles are numerous and daunting. For example, dozens of men who only need 10 quick seconds of the authorized Mohel's time. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom.